Thank you, choir. Jonathan, good morning. Uh, take your Bibles out, if you would, with me this morning and find 2 Timothy chapter 3 and also 2 Peter chapter 1. Today will be a little different, and I will explain why in a few moments. I know uh, usually we come on a Sunday morning and uh, we expect a sermon out of a portion of scripture, and that's what I do, okay? Uh, we are embarking today upon a doctrinal study that we'll probably be in for maybe eight or nine weeks. On Palm Sunday, though, we will be having a normal message centered around Palm Sunday, and on Easter Sunday, the same. So after this week and next week, we'll be taking a little break from our doctrinal study, and then after Easter, getting back into it. So uh, if you're a guest of ours this morning and you come to hear a normal uh, sermon, just come back in a few weeks and we'll get back into that pattern. Uh, I do want to just reiterate that those watching online, there is a study guide just like our folks here in person have this morning online for you. If you'll click on that tab and, and open that up and you can print it off. And let me say to everybody here this morning, whether you're in person or online, after this message today and each one, uh, you can go to the, listen to the sermon of it over again and click on a tab and get the entire manuscript. So as you're going through your study guide this morning, if you miss something on the screen, don't worry about it. You can print off everything that I'm going to say this morning verbatim uh, after today. So don't worry again if you if you miss something. I do want to mention that uh, uh, great saint in our church that we all love dearly, one of the sweetest ladies I think I've ever met in my entire life, Marion Pressler. Uh, her sisters, Geneva and Beulah and Gertrude, they were all a part of our church family. Uh, she did pass away yesterday morning. She was 98 years young. And uh, she'd been in the memory impaired unit at Taylor Glen. They do not uh, have a time set for the funeral yet. I'm to talk to her daughter, Donna, uh, again today. Uh, probably Tuesday or Wednesday, I would expect a service, so be looking for news on that. Also, Kevin mentioned Shana, uh, Shana Lapish's dad did pass away this morning sometime, so remember that family. One other uh, matter of housekeeping, this past Thursday night, our deacons did uh, set our Annie Armstrong offering goal that will start being collected on uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, $55,000. Last year we gave right at $50,000 to the Annie Goal. Uh, our Annie Armstrong Easter offering supports North American missions. Our North American Mission Board is very involved in 32 major metropolitan cities all across North America. That's the focus of their work. Also college and university campuses and church planning efforts in all of the above, and then they also handle things like disaster relief 
Uh, they're involved in a lot, much more than what I'm indicating to you, but they depend on the Annie Armstrong offering to carry out their work here in North America. So we ask you to give uh, prayerfully to that. Again, the goal was set at 55000 At Christmas, our Lottie Moon offering for international missions, you gave over 105000 uh, surpassing our goal by tens of thousands of dollars. So you're to be commended uh, for that. Uh, but again, this will be the North American mission goal. If you would, uh, and guys, this, this may be a little bit, I'm getting a little, just a touch of feedback up here this morning. I wouldn't take it down much, but just a little bit, so I'm not getting that ringing. If you'll take your Bibles and uh, turn with me, if you would please, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll read from verses 16 through 17, and we'll flip over to 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and teaching in righteousness or training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then you look over at 2 Peter chapter 1, and beginning in verse 20, Simon Peter writes, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As Kevin Knight mentioned, our focus this morning will be on Scripture. That'll actually be number five uh, in your outline this morning. Number five is where we're going to concentrate. But before we get there, I need to set the table a bit. Folks, I'm going to try to be very basic. You know, to do a multi-week study like this, we, we have to sort of set the table. Because after all, there's a context to what we're talking about. With any subject, you don't just jump in cold. Let me say up front that this will not be a series on apologetics. Apologetics is a discipline in its own right that deals with defending the Christian faith. It's a very important discipline and one which in our world today is very much needed. But that is not what this will be. Celebrating our foundations has to do with key doctrines that help define who we are and what we believe as evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. This past fall, we were in a, a day-long staff planning retreat up at Lake Norman, and one of the things we were talking about was discipleship training, and I was going to do this with the men in our church, like on a Sunday night, for instance. And the staff asked me, 
I, I think in particular it was the two Kevins as they worked so much with junior high, high schoolers, college aged. They said, Scott, would you consider doing this on a Sunday morning because all of our people need to hear this and our young people need to hear it and we're getting more and more people coming to us from different backgrounds and church traditions so would you do that on a Sunday morning I, I thought it was a great idea because it's what the church used to do for centuries doctrine and theology came under the ministry of the local church a couple of hundred years ago it shifted to the academy and to the university. And when it did, the average man or woman in the pew lost something. Plus, when it shifted to the academy, it tended to become more academic versus life application. Now, when you hear the word doctrine, doctrine is our set of beliefs based on what the Scripture teaches about any given subject. And when you organize doctrine into an overall framework or study, what you're talking about is theology. And so at times, you may hear me use doctrine and theology interchangeably. Theology is basically just an organized study of doctrine. We tend to make it more complicated than that. Now, if you mention the word theology on an airplane, you may be faced with 10 people who want to jump out from 30,000 feet, okay? But theology is simply looking at the doctrine of God, and what could be more basic to the Christian life than studying God? Let me also say that everyone, in a sense, is a theologian. Because everybody has a set of beliefs that they operate out of. So whether you realize it or not, you're a theologian. But the question is, are we biblical theologians? You see, that's the key. Now, if we really wanted to be a little more technical still, theology is literally words about God. That's what the word theology means. And so if we were talking about theology proper, what we would simply be looking at is the doctrine of God. Now, if you were to drop to the very last page of your study guide this morning, you would see under theology proper, there are subsets. There are subcategories to theology. Soteriology pertains to salvation. Ecclesiology pertains to the local church. Eschatology, last things. Those are subsets that fall under theology. Theology proper is the doctrine of God. Now, when we talk about doctrine, I had a wonderful opportunity following the sabbatical you gave me. I had the president of one of our 
North Carolina colleges, uh, Fruitland, up in Hendersonville. You need to understand something about Fruitland. One-third of all the ministers in North Carolina filter through Fruitland at some point. One-third. They have a very limited budget, and so what they will do is use, they'll rotate in and out pastors through the state to come and teach for a period of time. And so Dr. David Horton asked me, he called me and asked me if I would teach Theology 101 and 102 and take a turn at that. And it was a wonderful blessing to do so. You know, as a church made up of, what, 81 churches in our Cabarrus Baptist Association from time to time, we'll come alongside another church in our association and do something, and, and it's a mission that we do. And so I looked at it as a mission extension of the church to be able to go and teach theology and uh, impact possibly one-third of ministers that would be serving in our North Carolina churches. So it was a great blessing to be able to do that for a period of time. But I want to say that this will not be that either. Some of you want it to be that. You know, we've got some in our church who want me to go very, very deep and keep getting deeper. But I can't do that on a Sunday morning. On a Sunday morning, I have to do a shotgun blast to cover a wide range of people at all different walks in their Christian life instead of a rifle shot. You know, so this is going to be more like even more basic than 101. Some of you want 401. It's not going to be that. Okay? Well, let's hasten on. Let's look at an introduction to doctrinal or theological matters. Martin Luther said, we are called theologians just as we're called Christians. John Calvin said, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not always easy to discern. John R.W. Stott, one of my favorite writers, uh, said, One of the most neglected aspects of the quest for holiness is in the mind. It is by the renewal of our mind that our character and behavior become transformed. Folks, that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 12 too, is it not? Now again, folks, everything I'm saying, afterwards, you can click on our website and get all of this verbatim, okay? Let's talk this morning about some inadequate suppositions. The first of all would be separation of doctrine and practice. It's the thought, I just want to be practical. Give me 10 steps to a better marriage, not Millard Erickson's Christian doctrine. Millard Erickson is one of our Baptist theologians, has a massive volume out. Just give me 10 steps to financial freedom, 10 steps 
to a better marriage. Don't give me Millard Erickson. That's what some people believe. But folks, we need to remember the whole of the Christian life and experience is our response to God's truth. The Christian life is essentially the application of doctrine or theology. What you believe shapes how you live. Now, much like the first inadequate supposition is the one that says, I just want to love Jesus. Is that not enough? But I want you to remember something. Our love for Jesus needs to be informed. We need to base our relationship with him on the truth that he's revealed to us in his word. I'm sure if you would have asked the children of Israel when they were out in the wilderness and they had Aaron make for them the golden calf, if you would have come along to them and said, as they're worshiping the golden calf, do you love God? They would have said, yes, we love God. But they were showing by what they were doing that they didn't really truly love the true and living God. They were loving who they thought God was, but they were wrong. A third inadequate supposition is one that puts all the emphasis on the head. It's the thought, I just want to be smarter than everybody else. But you know, as Paul said to the Corinthians, knowledge alone puffs up. It causes pride. The goal of knowledge is love. Love of God and love of God's children. Anything short of that is an inadequate model. J.I. Packer once said, theology is for doxology and devotion. That is, the praise of God and the practice of godliness. Thirdly, I want you to see that the Bible actually encourages theological and doctrinal thinking. In 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verse 20, Paul says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In Acts 2.42 it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul said, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You know, I could mention another one, couldn't I? Jude Jude 3, what did Jude say? Contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Also in the, in the upper room, Jesus gave his disciples a lesson in soteriology, salvation. He gave them a lesson in the Trinity and in the person and work of Christ. Don't believe it? Just read John 14 through 16 and, and you'll see that. Paul gave the Philippians a lesson in the incarnation and death and exaltation of Jesus in, in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, sometimes called the Christ hymn. Maybe he was quoting from a well-known hymn or a poem, but he's talking there about the 
incarnation, about the crucifixion and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives, devotes a whole chapter to talking about the theology or the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. So again, the Bible encourages this kind of thinking. Dr. Wayne Gruden, his systematic theology is maybe the one used most, perhaps, in our colleges and universities and some of our seminaries. Wayne Gruden says, systematic theology is any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? Notice that he emphasizes the whole Bible. Because what we need to avoid is jumping to conclusions too quickly based upon an inadequate sampling of biblical text. Some people will take a biblical text out of context and they'll build a whole doctrine off of that. And so Erickson emphasizes when we're talking about doctrine and theology, we need to see what the whole Bible says about that subject matter. He goes on to say, Christian doctrine is simply statements of the most fundamental beliefs the Christian has. Beliefs about the nature of God, about his action, about us who are his creatures, and about what he has done to bring us into relationship with himself. Folks, rather than looking at doctrine or theology in some kind of dry and disconnected way, we need to see that it deals actually with issues that are fundamental to life and fundamental to salvation and eternity questions like who am I what's the purpose of life is there a God can we know him how can we know him what's the purpose of all of creation where's everything headed questions that the man on the street is asking these are questions that theology actually deals with The word theology, I mentioned a moment ago, is words about God. Made up of two words, theos, God, logos, word. And so literally, words about God. That's what theology is. And you know what? It really should be the delight of every believer to think about God. Amen? Now, Erickson speaks about the necessity of theology. First of all, what I want you to write down here in, in your blank on your study guide. Correct doctrinal beliefs are essential in order to know God. God has chosen to reveal himself in certain ways. Christianity affirms that there is one way to know God. It's, it's exclusive. A second thought here is doctrine is important because of the connection between truth and experience. Experience is to be built upon proper belief. Folks, we live in an age where people overvalue their experience. Is our experience based upon God's truth? That's the critical question. 
correct understanding of doctrine is important because there's many religious systems of thought that compete for our devotion. Now, in Christian doctrinal studies, there's a basic assumption that drives us. First, the Bible is true. The Bible is true. And secondly, the God who is spoken of in the Bible exists and he's made it possible for us to know him. Wayne Gruden asked, how should Christians study systematic theology? First of all, we should study theology with prayer. Psalm 119.18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Now folks, what a great way to approach what we're going to be looking at. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And you know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so we desperately need God's help. We need the help of the Spirit of God because no man is inadequate for this on his own. A second thing Erickson says about how we should study theology is with humility. Humility. As we learn more about God's Word and how believers through the ages have understood God's Word, it would be easy for some people to look down on others in the church who don't share their same knowledge or, or passion. We might even be tempted to look down at those who've been in the faith a long, long, long time and we're disappointed that they don't know more than they know. Or we may view our learning from the angle that we want to learn everything just so we can outmaneuver our friends in debates. But you know, to all of that, we need to pay attention to what James says about the wisdom from above in James chapter 3. The wisdom from above is not divisive like that. That characterizes the wisdom that's from below. So a proper study of theology should result in a greater love for God, which will carry with it a greater love for our fellow man. Now let's talk a moment about general revelation. And we're not going to dive into general revelation real deep. I just want you to know how it differs from what we're going to get to next when we talk about special revelation. Folks, because we are finite and God is infinite, if man is to know God, who's got to take the initiative? If we're finite and God's infinite, if we're going to know God, who's got to take the initiative? God does, exactly. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith was probably the most, certainly one of the most important doctrinal standards of all times. It was written in the 1640s. Baptists did their own version in 1689 with the Second London Baptist 
confession and then when when they came to America then the Philadelphia almost all doctrinal statements today in some way or another will go back and rely to some degree on the Westminster the Westminster confession says although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness wisdom and power of God as to leave men inexcusable yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation now general revelation sometimes called natural revelation is general in two ways first of all it is general in that it is given or directed to all men God has revealed himself to all persons at all times. What do I mean by that? Write down Psalm 19 and and Romans chapter 1. Psalm 19 talks about the heavens declare what? The glory of God. And then then you read over in Romans chapter 1. Just listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. In in verse 19 he says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So when you look at the created world around you and you see all the majesty in it, all the orderliness in it, this is all general revelation declaring to us that there's a God who made all of this. That's general revelation or one aspect of general revelation. And why is it given to all men? Because whether you're in America, whether you're in Africa, whether you're in some part of Europe or India or Russia or wherever, you go out at night and look up at the heavens and everybody has that that same revelation given in the heavens above. It's given to all men. It's also general in that it's only intended to reveal a limited amount of understanding. Special revelation, on the other hand, was revelation given to particular persons at particular times. In general revelation, God reveals himself through nature, through history, and through the inner conscience of man. And folks, again, as Paul says in Romans 1, general revelation renders all men without excuse nobody can ever stand before God on judgment day and say but God I did not know that you were there because God has left his fingerprints all over the created order there's also an internal sense of God in every person And something that shows us that, wherever our missionaries go, sometimes they go to very remote places. And what do they find? They always find people who are trying to worship some deity of some sort. 
They might be bowing down to a wooden idol, but they're trying to worship something instinctively. And then Paul in Romans 2 talks about the inner conscious too. There's that sense of right and wrong within each of us. Where does that come from? That comes from God. All of that's part of general revelation. Now let me say something very important. General revelation is sufficient to condemn. It is not sufficient to save. General revelation is sufficient to condemn. It is not sufficient to save. For salvation, we need special revelation, specifically God's good news of His Son and of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what are some implications of general revelation? I think I gave those to you, didn't I? Yeah. Look at those six statements. There's a common ground or point of contact between the believer and the non-believer. All persons have a knowledge of God. Secondly, there is a possibility of some knowledge of God outside of special revelation. Again, Romans 1, 19 to 20 points out that God has made himself known through creation so that men know he's there and therefore men are without excuse. A third thing, and I know there are people today who have problems with this, but listen to this, it's very important. God is just in condemning those who have never heard the gospel in the full and formal sense. Now we know God's going to do the right thing. He's a just God. But as scripture tells us, if somebody responds to the amount of light that they have been given, God gives more light. You could, you could cite the case of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. God gave him more light and more light. And finally he was at Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, a God-fearing man. He was responsible for the amount of light that he had been given. God gave him more light and he was saved. If somebody dies steeped in paganism, it's only evidence that they didn't even respond to the amount of light they had. And so they stand condemned. A fourth statement, general revelation serves to explain the worldwide phenomenon of religion and religions. What I mentioned a moment ago about where our missionaries go, they always find expressions of worship of something or of some sort. Fifth, since both creation and the gospel are intelligible and coherent revelations of God, there is harmony between the two and mutual reinforcement of one by the other. Folks, there's not disagreement between general revelation and special revelation. They support and enforce one another. 
And then a last statement about general revelation. Genuine knowledge and genuine morality in unbelieving and believing men and women are not their own accomplishment. All truth is God's truth. Now let's talk about special revelation in our time that remains. We may have to carry this into next week. And under special revelation, we're going to concentrate today on the doctrine of Scripture. Now, let me say this. In addition to the theology books I have, and I probably have, my wife will tell you I'm a book addict. I probably have 25 volumes of theology. Uh, In addition to all those... uh, John MacArthur's church, Grace Community Church, does sort of like a new members class or a new Christians class, basic called Fundamentals of the Faith. Actually, we have some members of our church here who are out of that church and gave me this, Fundamentals of the Faith. So some of what I talk about in here will, will be out of that. I want you to write down that Christians affirm that the Bible is the Word of God. Now let's think about this. The scriptures were written by approximately 40 different men. These men lived in several different cultures and countries. They they lived in different eras from 14 B.C. all the way through 90 A.D. They wrote in mainly two languages. Hebrew, the Old Testament, and Greek, the New Testament. Now, there are smaller portions of the Old Testament also in Aramaic. A a few of the chapters in the book of Daniel and a couple of places in the book of Ezra. Some of that's Aramaic, but primarily the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. The New Testament written in Greek, and it was Koine Greek. Koine Greek was the common street language, the the Greek language of the man on the street, the farmer, the, the, the craftsman. It wasn't the classical Greek of the university. Think about that. God wrote his word in the common language of the everyday man. But folks, despite these different persons, languages, times, and cultures, the focus of Scripture tells one main storyline, sometimes called a meta-narrative. It tells the story of redemption climaxing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think about the miracle of that. When you think of all the different people, the different climates that they came out of, over all of those centuries, and the the 66 books of the Bible fit together like a glove. It's amazing. Here's what the the Baptist Faith and Message is our doctrinal statement. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000. You can go on sbc.net and other places as well, but you can download a full copy of the Baptist Faith and Message. Here's what it says about the Scriptures. 
The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. That is your Southern Baptist doctrinal statement on the scripture. Now the Old Testament consists of how many books? 39. First of all, you have the Pentateuch, five books, sometimes called the five books of Moses. These would be Genesis through Deuteronomy. Genesis concentrates on beginnings. Beginnings with creation, man, sin, redemption, God's covenant with specific individuals like Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Exodus tells the story of God delivering the descendants of Jacob from Egyptian slavery. Leviticus talks about atonement, holiness, and worship through sacrifices and, and, and purification. Numbers talks about God's people uh, continually disobeying God and wandering in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died off. And then Deuteronomy is Moses' great discourses to prepare this new generation of Hebrews to enter the promised land. And then you have history, 12 books written between approximately 1400 and 450 B.C. These books describe God's dealings with his chosen people, Israel. And these books go from Joshua to Esther. And then you have the poetry or the wisdom books, five books. And these books celebrate sometimes in poetry form, sometimes in song, God's greatness and God's dealings with men. So here we're talking about Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. And then you're talking about the major prophets. Five books. Written between approximately 750 B.C. and 550 B.C. Now... True or false, they are called the major prophets because they were more inspired than the minor prophets. False. They are simply called the major prophets because they are long books. They're longer. Okay? Here we have Isaiah. And Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel and Daniel. Then you have the minor prophets. Twelve books. They're called minor prophets because they're not as much inspired as the major prophets. True or false? False. They're just as inspired. They're called minor because they're shorter books. They run from Hosea to Malachi. Now, the New Testament consists of 27 books. 
And the New Testament or New Covenant concentrates on promises fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If the Old Testament promised his arrival, the New Testament records his arrival. What we see in the New Testament is the redemptive plan that was set forth in the Old Testament is fulfilled and culminated in Christ. In the New Testament, we see the life of Christ. We see the beginning of the church. We see the instructions for Christian living. And we see God's plan for the future. Now, what are we talking about with New Testament books? First of all, history. Five books. You have four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, folks, most scholars would refer to Mark and priority, meaning that Mark wrote first, and then Matthew and Luke borrowed from him, and then used some other source that scholars call Q. Now, that's probably still the majority view today. It's not absolutely conclusive. You'll find New Testament scholars who hold a Matthean priority, some Luke, but probably most still say the text itself when you study the literary forms and so forth probably indicate Mark and priority. So then why would Matthew have been put first? Because Matthew is the most Jewish gospel and as such it's the natural bridge from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels, which just simply means they're similar. Those three gospels are very similar. And focusing a lot on Jesus' Galilean ministry, for instance. The gospel of John concentrates heavily on the deity of Christ and records Christ going down into Judea a lot at the temple and going to the temple festivals and so forth. Then you have letters or epistles, 21 books. These books were written to individuals, certain churches in particular, or to believers in general. They deal primarily with putting Christian belief into practice now, Paul's letters make up 13 of these books from Romans through Philemon. The general epistles go from Hebrews to Jude. And then, of course, prophecy, one book, the book of Revelation. It's the book of Revelation, not Revelations. You'll hear people refer to it as the book of Revelations. Revelation. And it, it deals with the return of Jesus Christ and the, and the reign and glory of Jesus Christ and the future state of believers and unbelievers. And it also gives a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth. True or false? There's agreement today among believers and scholars as to how to interpret the book of Revelation. False. But you know what? Most of the interpretations do agree on the big rocks, the major developments. The disagreement would be in the details how it all unfolds. 
Now, folks, when we talk about the Bible, let's talk next about the inerrancy of Scripture because we need to know that we have a book that we can rely upon. I've got five minutes to go, probably. Y'all want me to finish this one this morning or you want to wait? Keep going? Okay. When we talk about the Bible, let's talk again inerrancy. Inerrancy states that the Bible is without error. Now, it's the doctrine of inspiration that naturally leads to the doctrine of inerrancy. It's precisely because we believe the Bible is God-breathed that we also believe that the Scripture is inerrant or without error in the original manuscripts. And so a working definition of inerrancy would be the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is false or contrary to fact. And so the definition in its simplest understanding just means that the Bible always tells the truth. And furthermore, we could add that it always tells the truth concerning everything that it talks about. Now folks, some have tried to say that inerrancy only refers to those things in the Bible that have to do with matters of faith. But evangelical Christians believe that inerrancy extends to and includes the Bible's words about everything. Now, people know... Evangelical scholars know the Bible is not intended to be just a history book or a science book. But nonetheless, when it makes those kinds of statements, inerrancy affirms that those statements can be trusted. If the Bible couldn't be trusted in those matters, then how would we know that it could be trusted in matters pertaining to faith? Now, the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in ordinary terms or in round numbers without threatening the doctrine of inerrancy. We call this phenomenological language. Boy, now that's a big word, isn't it? For instance, the Bible can talk about the sun rising and not be an error. Because that's how we talk. A.H. Strong, one of our Baptist theologians, said, Would you prefer when the Bible talks about Jacob going out to meet one of his wives that he talks about when the solar luminary was this position on its axis and this was taking place and this was taking place and that Jacob went out to meet her? Would you, would you want the Bible to talk like that? Of course not. Now, Scripture can't be rightly understood unless we take into consideration that it has a dual-sided authorship. It's not enough to affirm that the Bible is a human witness to divine revelation because the Bible is also God's witness to himself. We must affirm that the Bible is entirely the Word of God and the words of human authors. It's the Word of God written in the words of men. Folks, I'm not going to get finished. Let's stop there. 
but you'll you will notice let me let me let me have you fill in real quick under under uh, theories of inspiration natural inspiration because boy that we're facing this one in society today and I'll talk more about this next week this view simply holds that the writers of the Bible were men who didn't need any supernatural help or insight it's a human book especially those on the far left today would probably buy into this the Bible's just a human book it's outdated and if society doesn't like today something it says throw the Bible away we need to go this direction natural inspiration then the dictation view this view is the other side of the spectrum and holds that God directly dictated every single word to the biblical writers well we know in some cases he did like when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments or certain places in the scripture where he said thus saith the Lord but again that's not the best way to look at it then the illumination view this view simply holds that the biblical writers had the Holy Spirit working on them in such a way that their religious insight was elevated I'll go over this more next week but the the one that we hold to the last option the verbal plenary view you need to put a star beside that one because that's what evangelical Christians hold to okay we're gonna come back next week and finish this okay lot to talk about I thought I would get done and I didn't but folks let me let me wrap up by saying this if the scripture is God's testimony that is true and reliable in matters of faith and practice concerning salvation concerning the future heaven and hell the Christian life then what do I need to be doing as a believer reading it think of this think of it we believe that this book made up of 66 books contains or is I should say not just contains it is God's Word does God tell us every single thing about everything no because even as the Gospel of John says if it told us that then all the books in the world couldn't hold it but in this book which is God's Word he tells us what we need to know about salvation and living this is God's Word to you and me it's his love letter and it tells us the way of salvation and that there's only one way through Jesus Christ and I may be talking to somebody this morning who doesn't know Christ we're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation I'm going to ask you to come forward you may want to pray with me say pastor I need to know Christ I need to know Christ would you pray with me Christians here who would want to say you know what this is God's Word and I've been neglecting it pastor pray for me I need to systematically read it and I need to read it all the way through I need to read the whole counsel of God not just my favorite little portions I need to read it all because I need to know what God is saying to me he speaks through his word would you make that commitment as we close this morning let's stand please